when I start talking about the, the meat and potatoes of a machine learning model, everyone just says, oh, no, that's, that's mathematics. No, I, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> this is an important uh, soft skill that all data scientists must have nowadays, how to convey the proper amount of information needed to the other party. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes. But what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and I'm excited to share with you some big news. We've recently rebranded, and we're bringing the fun with a new format that's jam-packed with value. Our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Our first theme is first-party data in marketing. We'll be diving deep into the importance of first-party data, how to collect it, and how to use it to improve your marketing efforts. Our first theme, first-party data in marketing, is just the beginning of our deep-dive journey into the nitty-gritty of what strategies really work in the SaaS industry. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. Tune in and start dominating your market today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing. And today, we're doing something a little different. I am going to be interviewing our data scientist, Nikolai Stefanov. And Nikolai has been our chief data scientist at Hop Online for about a year and a half, working on various data science projects and primarily trying to crack predictive lifetime value using machine learning models. And he's here to tell us all about that. So, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paris. Then now that you're in a marketing agency, tell me, what is it like to be a data scientist sitting inside of a marketing agency? How has that transition been for you? Oh, extremely interesting. One of the main benefits of being a data scientist in uh, today's world is that you get to work with many different and really different in their core fields. And you have to exchange knowledge with many different specialists. And this is especially true in a marketing agency uh, where you have different clients. Each of them has completely different kinds of business. You have to learn every single business. You get to teach other people about what you do. And I've done some teaching and I also love it. So really dynamic, really interesting. What, what have been some of the particular challenges to adapt to a marketing agency since you hadn't, hadn't had any formal marketing education or training? I would say the platforms can sometimes be tricky. They have a lot of intricacies that have to be learned inside and out in order to, to be comfortable with them and to be comfortable with them interacting with the actual data science part. One other thing is um, when I start talking about the meat and potatoes of a machine learning model, everyone just says, oh, no, that's, that's mathematics. No, I, I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like speaking, maybe speaking a different language. Is that a fair statement? Uh, you could you could say that. And uh, this is an important soft skill that all data scientists must have nowadays, how to convey the proper amount of information needed to the other party. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the work itself. Tell us about what you're really working on. What challenges are you trying to solve? Problems are you trying to solve for our agency and for our clients? What I'm focusing on is uh, mainly build a good model to determine a predicted lifetime value for new incoming customers for our clients. In simple terms, 
we have a bunch of existing customers and based on their attributes, their behavior, their initial first party and zero party data, we want to predict what would be the lifetime value of new customers. And uh, why, why does that matter? I mean, what's the, what's the whole point? What do you do if you can predict the lifetime value? So, so what? Well, after we are done with that, uh, we upload the results of new clients into the platforms, the Google platforms. And after that, Google knows really well on whom and uh, when to bid and what mm -hmm. amount. And then this brings extra value and prevents Google to prevents bidding on not really valuable customers, which happens a lot, as, as we know as marketers. So let me make sure that I understand correctly. If, if Google, w without this information, Google has less signals, fewer signals to work with to try to identify high value customers, and they might accidentally be spending your ad budget on the wrong customers, low exactly. value customers. Exactly. And what about if I'm a, like an e-commerce company and there's a customer who might have a high value today, but a low value lifetime versus someone who might spend a lot on the first purchase, but then have a, has a no repeat purchase propensity. So a lower lifetime value. Would this algorithm prioritize the person who's going to bring me less money today, but more money over the next three years? Oh, yes. If you build your uh, algorithm correctly mm -hmm. and you bring enough data into it, it can be very accurate in predicting any, um, any such disparity in uh, lifetime value. Yeah, but I really want to get at that trade-off. So I've heard this pushback before personally, that everyone understands that it's best for the business long-term to improve the enterprise value, which means to go after customers with high lifetime value, even if that revenue might be further out into the future. But you're maybe making a trade-off there and sacrificing, perhaps a sacrificing higher upfront revenues from certain customers who might have lower lifetime values, but uh, the algorithm would prioritize or deprioritize them. How do you how do you work around that challenge with uh, with a client? Well, first of all, the client has to be on board, and they have to want what you mentioned: this mm -hmm. uh, stable, long-term, higher profits. If the client is really set on just short-term, really one-time purchase clients, they may want something else from uh, the machine learning algorithm or from from their Google Ads strategy. They might want to go for a really aggressive and for an aggressive strategy that relies on volume of customers instead of a higher value. Mm -hmm. But of course, a stable longer term value is preferred for most businesses. Yeah, I, I think this is a really fundamental, extremely important point that I want to bring up here, which is that not all businesses necessarily want to maximize enterprise value as a first priority because different businesses have different objectives at different points in their life cycle. If I'm a startup business and I need to get, I really need to get traction, I'm, I might prioritize revenue today over revenue tomorrow, even if revenue today is less than revenue tomorrow. If I'm a business that has an investor who wants to prove that the, the business has a certain value that is connected with enterprise value, and that investor is looking at that value creation as defined by lifetime value of new customers acquired, projected lifetime value or predicted which is what we're working on. Well, then that business's top priority is to create enterprise value. And then a solution like predicted lifetime value should be the top priority. And that business should be willing to sacrifice a little bit more revenue today for a lot more revenue over the next two, three, four, five years. So prioritizing lifetime value over immediate in-month revenue. 
And whether that's e-commerce, where you might try to get someone in with a first purchase with a low margin first purchase and then capture them for a high lifetime value with some kind of repeat or recurring or subscription-based activity, or for a SaaS business where you might uh, pay a lot to acquire them and you might not have a payback period for six or eight or even 12 months. But if you know that that's a five-year, five-plus-year customer, you know you're going to recoup that. And the lifetime value of the LTV to CAC ratio is still very, very high. And so I think that that's one precondition for this type of work is to find those clients and those businesses who are in that state of their business life cycle where they prioritize enterprise value creation over immediate revenue. So I wanted to get that out there because I think that provides the context that this solution of predicting lifetime value isn't necessarily the best solution for every business. Uh, it is by no means the end all be all of all marketing, right? In our field, no one is uh, losing their job to AIs and so on, like the buzz is nowadays. It's an extra tool to help everything else that has only already been established as successful. The marketing after subscription, the email marketing, the effective targeting, effective campaigns, the, these are still really, really important mm-hmm. that they're not going any, anywhere. That's a good point. That's a good point, Nikki. If you, if you acquire a customer and you can predict their lifetime value, that doesn't mean that you can forget about serving that customer because yes, then you'll, you'll screw up the whole thing. <laughs> I mean then eventually your, your lifetime value is going to start to drop. So you yeah. still have to deliver a great service for that Absolutely. new customer in order to fulfill or realize the lifetime value that you've predicted. And uh, let's, let's look at this from Google's perspective. Google is supporting us and our agency uh, very, very strongly in this whole initiative. Why do you think that is? Ah, well, because they uh, get something from it. They get an enhanced information about their customers. This is just an extra layer of data they get on every every person with a Google account, right? That mm-hmm. gets to register on any platform. So is it really about Google's hunger for data that it doesn't have? Ah, not only, of course. I'm sure they really want to expand and just make their uh, ad services better. If they are, more people would be using them, right? Yeah. I think this is really connected with the inevitable demise of third-party cookies. And for those mm-hmm. listening, I think a lot of you are marketers and you know what third-party cookies are, what they do. They're little bits of little bits of code that live in the browser that tracks users' behavior all across the, that browser. And if it's Chrome browser, most people are using Chrome, then Google via third-party cookies can build a very robust, rich profile of you as a user and your needs and your intents based on what you do in that Chrome browser. And those signals are very, very powerful in helping to deliver conversions through the Google Ads platform. Now, that all that will be going away. Third-party based tracking is going away according to Google's latest guidance sometime next year. So we're maybe 12 or 18 months away from that. And I know that Google is working very, very hard with a substitute solution called Privacy Sandbox, where they can try to anonymize the user data a little bit more and group it into cohorts. I'm still a little bit skeptical about that. But the reason this is mission critical for Google, this mission to convince advertisers to hand over their first party data to Google is because when the third party cookie tracking goes away, that's a massive loss of data. That's a massive signal loss. And Google will need to substitute that signal loss with something else, with even a stronger signal 
And that stronger signal is the advertiser's own data, their first party data. And that includes, well, what we're working on, predicted lifetime value, which is a very sophisticated form of first party data that's been run through machine learning models. But even at a simpler level, you're talking about your email marketing lists, you know, that can be handed to Google for a customer match and similar audience building. CRM data, Google doesn't have access to CRM data that shows how your prospects and leads are moving through the pipeline and their values through that pipeline. And also marketing automation tools and analytics tools that you're running outside of Google Analytics, let's say, or Google Tag Manager or Looker Studio. That is all information, first party data that Google doesn't have. So Google is very actively now lobbying for first-party data, which is eventually going to substitute for the loss of that third-party data. And this solution, the predicted lifetime value, or PLTV, I think is an ultimate expression of boiling down a sophisticated pile, a huge pile of first-party data into the, the primary core signal that Google needs most, which is what is the lifetime value of this user so that Google can bid on a target ROAS, target return on ad spend against that. And that's, that's my short not so short monologue on why I think this matters so much to Google. Do you have any other opinions about that? I concur. Yeah, you explained it perfectly. Yeah. So we've been, uh, now let's look at it from our side. I mean, I want to understand more about your work and what, it, what does it take to actually build this machine learning model? Can you walk us through the steps? What, what are the preconditions that need to be in place with first party data? And then once you have what you need, how, how does the machine learning part even work? Okay, so first of all, a client must have a decent amount of data stored in a decent database, right? Uh, yeah, stop. What is decent amount? Uh, I would say that largely everything, all my answers here would start with, it depends. So <laughs> yeah, uh, does it depends have to be, on the does business. Does it have to be two tons of, of data by weight? Does it have to be... Uh... 500 terabytes of data? Uh, um, does it have to be X number of conversions uh, or number of customers over the last years? Or is that the right way to even think about it as how much data is enough data? Yes, yes. It's something quantifiable. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I would start with a number of customers. The more, the merrier, of course. Depending on the business, I would say the minimum would be between 2,000 and 10,000, something like that. Customers. Customers. Is that historic all time or is that today active customers? That was my, my next point. We, we would say a couple of years, data from a couple of years back is optimal, maybe two, three, in order to build a proper lifetime value model for existing customers. In order to predict so-called target variable with a machine learning model, we need to have this target variable established for all customers, which would be the base to teach the machine learning model. Mm -hmm. How dependent is this lifetime value on the, the behavior and uh, the data of the mm -hmm. users? Okay, so the key precondition or prerequisite for even getting started is to establish the lifetime value of the current customer base, correct? Yes, yes. And also have a clean database, a database with nice data quality. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'm going to get that, to that in a second, but the lifetime value, is that something that you're trying to estimate per individual customer or per user? Yes, okay. exactly. All right. And then when you say clean data... What do you mean? What is clean data? 
data without uh, mainly data without many holes, many empty fields with formats lining up nicely. I mean, as a data scientist, you don't want to see a conversion time first in a string, then in a differently formatted string, then in a timestamp and so on. That This is a mess. Okay. You, you don't want to work with that. Right. So you like to see apples and apples, consistency. Yes, very much so. Formatting, yeah. Because otherwise, uh, usually the, the data the data cleaning part is and getting it in a nice um, tabular way in order to be able to be inserted in a machine learning algorithm. This okay. is the, the part that okay. takes the longest. What you're trying to get to is a is an, an enormous table with with a, uh, basically every uh, customer on a row with their lifetime yes. value. And yes. And across and that horizontally, gobs and gobs of different data variables that you can use to test to see which of those points, da- data points or which combinations of data might be best at predicting that number, the LTV number. Exactly. And after that, actually predicting it. And uh, these yeah. columns uh, are first-party data, zero-party data, behavioral data from the first couple of days, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, after a user gets the subscription. Okay. Let's, let's pause there for a second. First-party data we've talked about, well, that, that, could be, that could be CRM data, that could be data in your, in your marketing automation platform, or perhaps even in your, uh, your CDP, your customer data platform, if you have that. Then you mentioned this thing called zero-party data. What, what do you mean by the zero-party data? Zero-party data is um, the data that uh, the user enters even before subscription, right, uh, in different forms. And we all know that forms are getting more and more prevalent on pretty much all sites. Yeah. So zero-party data would be something like I'm going through a free trial sign-up for a SaaS product. And in addition to asking me for my name and my email address, I might be asked other questions like, what is the size of my company? How big is my team? What are are my primary use cases or challenges so that the SaaS tool can understand a little bit more about my specific needs? Is that right? Exactly. So it's it's volunteered by the user at the time of Mm sign-up. Isn't that bad for conversion rates? No, I, I wouldn't say so. In in our experiences, uh, forms that issue some questions uh, about the users don't really impact the, the conversion rate. All right, zero-party data, first-party data, behavioral data. So this is data where somebody signs up and starts using the product in the first 24 hours or 48 hours. And how do you get your hands on that data, actually? Uh, those So different things like if they upload their logo or if they invite other users in their organization or if they start playing around with certain features that are the primary features. Where does all that data for that behavioral data, where does it come from and how do you actually get your, your hands on it? Well, the clients usually have it tracked and stored in their CRM, their database, and it comes from them. Now, that seems like a difficult set of data to get if, if a client isn't really ready for that. That means you have to query the database and say, who yep. did this, who did that? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this aggregation of data, this first whole phase, it sounds like, well, extremely important and necessary, but also a bit of a headache. What are some of the challenges that you've faced in this initial, this so-called ETL, extract, transform, and load phase of PLTV modeling? Well, in, in my experience so far, it's been mainly focused on data quality, right? Missing data, differently formatted data. This is, it's a couple of words, right? But this uh, converts into hours and hours of banging your head against the wall sometimes. So th- this is the hardest part, yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS, 
and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. And so now let's get to the point where you have this perfect table that you need. So it's, again, this is a table with, on the x-axis, you've got all your customers with their lifetime values that you've calculated at the beginning. That's the prerequisite. And then across that, on all those, in all those different columns, you've got all these different signals from various first-party data sources, zero-party data, behavioral data, uh, maybe even some enriched data, like about the company and their industry and size. Now you're ready. You're ready for machine learning. So then what happens? What do you do with that table? What happens next is, um, first, we need to determine what kind of machine learning model we would be using. This is mainly testing different types. And depending on the data, you might like one type. You might dislike other types. I usually start with the simplest ones. That would be so-called linear regressions. In our experience, not all data is really compatible with this model. The jack of all trades after that is random forest. Mm -hmm. After that, I I like to try random forest and it usually works. It usually works. It's a really, as I said, jack of all trades. Uh, It's a really stable model, Mm -hmm. a model that has built in options that negate most of the the things that the data qualities that you, you might want to avoid. And after that, you have to do a technique called grid search. I want, I don't want to get too technical, but you basically pick out the best model for your data. Okay. So even before doing machine learning, you've got to select the right model, right? Yeah. Oh, algorithm. Let's let's. Or the algorithm or the model. Pick the the so you perfect. You start with simple yeah. linear regression. It doesn't really work, meaning that what it, it does a bad job of predicting lifetime value. Uh, either that or just the data is is not a nice fit for for the model and this this usually ends up with not a great prediction yeah but how do you know that the prediction is is good or bad well you you have to evaluate your your model of course after mm-hmm. it pretty much all machine uh, machine learning models split the data into training test and the test set uh, usually 80 20 something along those lines mm-hmm. you train the model on the training set and mm-hmm. Of course, you test it on the test set and you evaluate it on on the results after testing. And if they're above a percentage that you you deem uh, high enough, when you consider the the type of business, the type of data, you you can go ahead and green light it. That percentage that you refer to, is that accuracy? Yes. Okay. So each model ultimately will give you a percentage of accuracy to the baseline known LTVs, Mm -hmm. right? And that's how you judge the model. Good models can predict at a high, high degree of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Bad models can predict or poorly at a low, low percentage of accuracy. Yeah. And what uh, percentage this, are you targeting? Exactly. I, mean, what's, I, I, what's... Was, I was about to say, yeah. Well, in theory, everything above 50% would be good enough, right? Because this mm-hmm. is uh, above the baseline of Google's flat bidding. Yes. But we are aiming at 85, at least with higher volumes of data, it can get to 90 plus. Okay. And with nice enough data, it can get even, even higher. Okay. Well, certainly when you get to 85 or 90%, 
I assume that that's good enough and you're ready to then start working with that. You start putting those PLTVs to work, to use. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that, let's stay with Random Forest a little bit because I don't want to get too geeky here, but how does Random Forest work? If that seems to be the superior model in most, most of the cases. So you have a bunch of users and a bunch of data attributes. It splits the users into different samples. You take one sample and you take one sample from the attributes. Then you build a so-called decision tree, which is basically a bunch of conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have a first condition that splits the users into two groups. Then you have two conditions that split them into further four groups. And in the end, you have them split into buckets. But this is for one sample from all users and a couple of attributes. Okay, it's a random sample. So the, the model is trying to randomize the data so that there's no bias in the data strip out the bias. Yes. The core logic is a decision tree logic, hence yes. the, the forest of the random forest. So an example might be, I'm initially going to split all of the users in the sample between the US and uh, non-US users. And then I'm going to further split the US users by their state or something like that, or East Coast yeah, or West Coast. You, you could say that. But it's always an A or B condition, each each decision tree. It's, it's a, a true or, or false. True, true or, or false. false. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the forest comes from uh, from the fact that this is one decision tree for, for one sample. And we do that a bunch of times, maybe a thousand times, maybe more. And then we average the results. Or if we're doing a classification algorithm, we pick out the result with uh, most votes. And this is the, the we pick this one as the correct one. Um, what do you mean most votes? Who's voting? On what? On the on the results of the buckets, right? Okay. Uh, this model uh, also prevents so- the so-called overfitting, which is an occurrence that that makes your model too accustomed to the data that you have, mm-hmm. and then all incoming data just tries to put it in. It tries to put it in the sense of the data that you already have. So as and the model starts to see success, the model naturally becomes biased, and then you've got to reverse that bias. The over is that what overfitting means? More or less, yeah, in very simple terms. Okay, so you have to counteract against overfitting. And ultimately, you, you talk about these buckets. Now, these buckets, are they, these are different lifetime values, predicted lifetime values, one in each bucket? Yes, yes, that's uh, that's exactly what you're doing now. You want really a nice spread of uh, lifetime values. Okay. You, you don't want 95, 96, 97, 98, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, when you upload this into Google, it barely matters. You want a nice right. spread 10, 12, 20, 30, and so on, up to 100. Want, yes, you want a, a wide range, don't you, from, from high to yes, low? Yes, yes. Okay. In order for that's everything to, to make sense and to uh, have any uh, tangible yeah. result in the end. And is one of those buckets a zero? Zero value user, like completely worthless. It might be, it might be, okay. or close to zero. Yeah, so that's certainly wasted ad spend, right? Oh yeah. In Google, in the Google Ads context. All right. So, how many buckets do you eventually wind up with? Oh, that depends entirely on the model and how complex you you've made it. Uh, mm-hmm. You can you can make it on with three um, splitting branches, and then it would have let's say eight because. Two to the power of three. Okay. You can make it uh, really complex with 32, let's say, or something in between. At some point, you you want to assess the accuracy, and at some point, it it doesn't get any any more accurate, and okay. you you can stop there safely. Okay. Gotcha. So when the incremental exponential growth in these buckets doesn't deliver the, the incremental uh, accuracy, you know you've got enough buckets and you can stop. 
And then what do you have? You've got say 32 or 64 different buckets, each with unique lifetime values. And in each of those lifetime values represent a very specific, unique set of data corresponding to that bucket, right? Yes. Okay. It's so data that, that has been sieved through the different conditions of the, of the decision tree. So it's basically different for every bucket. Okay. So if I get, if I then take that, if I imagine that there's a new user who comes in and signs up and there's certain data that we capture through zero party data, there's certain first party data that we can get. There's behavioral data in the first one, two, three days. And all that data looks like exactly like all the data that is aligned with bucket number five, let's say. Mm-hmm. And bucket number five has a predicted lifetime value of 1,500. Mm-hmm. Then does that mean that that new user is going to get assigned PLTV score of 1,500 because they look exactly like bucket number five? So they yeah, get placed in bucket number five? No no quotation marks needed even. That's exactly okay. what, what happens. <laughs> All right. Yeah, for those who might not, who, who are, uh, might be watching the video, yeah. Okay, now I think I'm getting my head around this. So this whole point is to assign PLTV scores to the users almost immediately after they sign up or is immediately after they become a new customer, right? Yeah, or a couple of days after that. Okay. In order to have some behavioral data. Okay. So then these PLTV values are getting assigned where? In the, in the database? Like a BigQuery database? Yeah, you either there and then you can transfer them to Google Ads, but mm-hmm. they need to get to Google Ads somehow. Yeah. How, how, are we, how are we doing this today? How do, they, how do these PLTV values get back to Google? First, we uh, write them back in our database in order to have the POTVs of the users also in the database. And from there in Google Sheets, and there's a really easy native integration from Google Sheets to Google Ads. Okay. All right. So that completes the whole final feedback loop back to Google. Yeah. You can also do it with APIs and many, many different ways. Maybe a reverse ETL tool that can, that can port it right back, port it right back to Google and, and, and closer to real time. Or no? uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's basically an API. Okay, I got it. Very interesting. And then Google, what Google actually receives is a conversion event. Is that right? Yes, conversion event with a hashed email address, which mm-hmm. it tries to match, a conversion time and conversion value. Right, okay. So this is an imported offline custom conversion. And this is to bring this full circle. This is that beautiful first party data signal that we've distilled from God knows dozens and dozens of different first party data signals. We've distilled it into one super valuable signal of lifetime value that's predicted. And we're giving that back to Google as a conversion event that's unique for every single new customer that's acquired. Correct? Yeah, I haven't thought about it as uh, distillation, but yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps. Um, Essentially. And all right, then Google bids then on the basis of value. So target return on ad spend. This, is, this allows an advertiser to move away from targets, fixed target CPA bidding, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. So if I have one PLTV that comes in at 100 and I have a rule set that I need a three to one LTV to CAC ratio, I can only acquire up to $33 to acquire that $100 user, right? Yeah, more but or if less. another user comes in with a thousand dollar PLTV, then I can I can tell Google Ads that we can we can spend up to three hundred and thirty three dollars to acquire that user, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if a, if a user comes in with zero value, yeah, we want to tell Google don't ever spend them. another single ad click on a user like that that you see. Yes, right. yes. 
Understood. And there's a bunch of those, right? In many products now have uh, trials and we know that most users don't go past trial. So right. there's a bunch of zero value users in mm-hmm. almost every business SaaS right. or otherwise. Yeah. I'm still a little bit hung up on this trade-off between volume and, and profitability or ROAS. Because if I'm a SaaS business that converts only 10% of my trials to paid, let's say, and you come to me with this PLTV solution and you can say, hey, I'm going to eliminate 90% of your wasted ad spend. I might say, well, hold on a second. Well, in theory, I, I can I can direct all of my ad spend at what's today the t- only the 10% of my trial base that will convert to paying customers. But I still need my volume. I mean, I still need that volume of trials either to get to get data or um, to for some other reason, perhaps. Is that still a pitfall that you're going to be sacrificing a lot of volume here? Well, you you might. It's also advisable to go into into this gradually, right? To switch one campaign to to this strategy, to this machine learning model bidding strategy. And in this sense, you might want to keep some campaigns that assure that you get volume, mm-hmm. and you might keep some campaigns that assure you can get higher LTV customers. Okay. That's something you might do. Yeah, I guess so. There's no law that states that you have to move all of your ad spend entirely over to to this approach. Uh, that that's almost uh, there's almost a law that uh, that says that you should not do it immediately, right? That yeah. it has to be a smooth transition. Right. Okay. But in a perfect world, if you have a if you have a blank check, uh, unlimited ad spend, and your objective is to build long term value to maximize long term value, then you should put all of your budget towards this approach, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But as we talked about earlier, that that's not the reality for every business. Some people need more cash today to keep going to uh, maybe to pump up their valuation today, which is based on a purely uh, on a revenue multiple. So there's a lot of different scenarios where enterprise value might not be the top priority. Of course, of course. As we mentioned, this is machine learning is just a tool in our field as in many, many fields. And it has to complement all the other strategies and not take away from them. And really, you have to think where where you use it and how you use it and not rely on it entirely. Yeah, great. Where, where do you see all this going, Nikki? We're talking about taking something that I think has enormous potential value for a business, predicting lifetime value right at the starting point of a new customer. And we're talking about taking that and using it only for a very specific use case of feeding Google ads a custom conversion event. But let's try to think bigger. What, what else? This seems to be the tip of the iceberg. What else could a business do with predicted lifetime value when it's estimated with such a high degree of accuracy right up front in a customer's life cycle. I would say that everything that's being done on the financial side of the business can be done better Mm -hmm. with information that comes from their database and data Mm -hmm. analysis, really a small amount of data analysis. Knowing, first of all, knowing the LTV of already existing customers is not a given for uh, most companies. Not many people have actual grasp on how valuable each of their users are. So you can do financial planning with that. You can look at which customers are valuable, who churn when do they churn why do they churn and act on all of these findings yeah i immediately think about how valuable that information would be for product development teams 
exactly and engineering yeah. teams because if you know particularly the behavioral data if you know which features let's say the features that are used that most highly correlate with high value low churn users well this is your product market fit these are your core features that you need to build around and conversely other features that you might be internally in love with if the use of those features is irrelevant or maybe negatively correlated to lifetime value then maybe you were wrong and, and that's that that's a, a sign that you can trim down those features yeah, there are many companies that have teams that do that internally. There are, let's say, software companies which can uh, reliably do that. But there's a huge pool of SaaS products, SaaS companies that just don't have the resources for that and don't do that. Great. All right. Well, Nikki, I think we can start to wrap up now. This has been fascinating and almost certainly the deepest that we've ever gotten into on this show into machine learning and data science. So I think it's been fascinating for me. I hope for some of our listeners, this has shed some light on the, I think what's ultimately going to be an inevitable marriage of data science and marketing as this new world of post third-party cookie world starts to come closer and closer. And I hope that all you marketers out there listening can appreciate that there are really important roles for data scientists now inside of agencies. And this is something that I think agencies and, and also brands and SaaS companies need to be thinking about very deeply that the work of data scientists isn't necessarily constricted to finance or to accounting uh, or to product, but also now to marketing. So we'll be reporting back with, with results from our PLTV testing as it's coming in. I, I really hope that that was helpful for everyone listening and it was really fun for me. So thank you very much, guys. Thanks for being on, Nikki. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.